I think I was a very serious teenager. Everything I did was very serious and I couldn't develop a laughter because I'd overhear myself and it, it would seem to be, um, I don't know, a lack of honesty there or authenticity in relation to that. And I just wish I, had, I could go back to that teenager and say, develop a laughter, kid. Um, that'll hold you in good stead. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. In my day job, I spend a lot of time talking about tax, equity, efficiency and simplicity, BEPs, incidents. And most people I deal with approach the questions in the same way. And then there's Grant Wardell Johnson. If you ever see a tax presentation that includes references to the Leviathan, the Magna Carta, Salvador Dali, Jackson Pollock, T. Gregorius and Thomas Aquinas, you can be pretty sure it's one of Grant Wardell Johnson's. Grant is a partner at KPMG, a major accounting firm, an adjunct tax professor at the University of New South Wales, a honorary fellow at the University of Western Australia. He participates in a number of reading groups, takes philosophy seriously and travels regularly to new countries. We're here today not to talk about his views on tax, uh, but his views on reading, philosophy, history and their role in a good life. Grant, welcome. Thank you very much. So tell me about your, uh, your upbringing. Were your parents as bookish as you are? No, indeed. My father, who was um, the son of a very widely read man and the first headmistress in New Zealand, um, didn't like reading. He was actually sent to his room and pu- um, to read uh, when the punishment came along. So uh, he had an aversion to reading and my mother was not a reader at all. Um, but maybe I picked up where my grandfather left off in enjoying reading. Were you a voracious reader as a kid? I was actually dyslexic, so I started to read until, you know, very late in the piece. Uh, I learnt to read through colour reading. There was a, a professor called Cuisinaire that developed coloured reading rods, which mm, many people mm. uh, might remember. But um, I actually learnt to read by writing out phonetically in different colour Um, The cat sat on the mat, for instance, and once it had gone through a different part of the brain, uh, I became quite an avid reader. What age was that? Um, It was identified that I had problems probably about eight or so. Does does the dyslexia still affect you? Um, I think it does. I think it means that when I take notes, for instance, um, I use limited words um, just because I'm a slower writer um, than others. Um, but I'm not known as a bad writer. In fact, I'm known as quite a good writer in, in my world, so I don't think it's a disadvantage to me in that way. Uh, and then you uh, focused on economics and law at the University of Sydney. Uh, were you drawn more to the economics or to the law? Um, 
I did economics law basically because I could get into it. I loved economics at high school and then um, went overseas as an exchange student and came, because I had the marks, said, oh, no, OK, I'll do economics law. But then my, my entire focus changed. I moved away from economics into classical political theory, so that was my major within the economics degree. Um, didn't really enjoy econometrics, etc. And, um, yeah, that's, that's helped shape who I am. But I'm very respectful of economic theory. Did you think about uh, getting go, going down that world into classics? Um, yes, until I actually embraced law. And in fact, I worked full-time at night and went to uni during the day. And in order to get Friday off, which I really needed, um, I, I, could, I, I did taxation law. And then the professor of, of taxation law, um, Richard Van, actually... Um, made me fall in love with the subject, so um, changed my path entirely. What was it about tax that, uh, that, that Richard managed to, to get you interested in? I think it has everything. Um, it has notions of justice, contributive justice. It has creativity. Um, it has detail and complexity. It links in with the political process. It links in with the way in which large um, businesses operate, and so it, it it has so many dimensions to it. I fell in love with it. Did you go straight from uh, university to working at KPMG? I did. So I've been in KPMG since Pearl Harbor Day, 1987. <laughs> um, uh, admittedly, I was seconded to Qantas for what became um, two years, eight months, and I've been seconded to London. So I've, I've done mm. ma- many things. So each year has generally been quite different from the last. Uh, and your secondment to uh, Qantas comes straight after becoming a partner, right? That's uh, exactly right. Yes. So did you, was this the sort of quid, quid pro quo of um, them making you a partner in 1997? You'd take a little little st- step out of the uh, the organisation across to somewhere else? No, I don't, I don't think it, was, it worked that way. I think the opportunity came up after I was a partner. Becoming a partner is quite a long process, but I loved it. Um, yeah. And once you've got kerosene in the blood, as it were, um, it, it, it never leaves you. So I love the airline industry. Yes. Uh, and uh, did you did you find that working at KPMG was as enjoyable as you'd thought it would be uh, from studying with Richard Van? Absolutely. And, I mean, KPMG has 190,000 people now, but being a very large firm, there are always different niches you could jump into, and, and that's the major advantage of doing so. And um, I was just very lucky to be at the right place at the right time for, for various moves there. So that, that's always been good. Now, you've got these three groups, the uh, Shakespeare group, the Decades group, and the uh, Journey group. Uh, tell, me, tell me about each of them. Uh, let's start with so the Shakespeare group. Shakespeare group, so we're, I think we're up to our 26th or 27th play now. So we're going back and doing ones that we've done before, although um, we're probably going to embrace one of the outer plays, if you like, every year. So the next one's Macbeth. Um, there are about 10 of us. Um, and what we do is we have meal, wine, and actually just read through the play and then, then discuss it. And um, yeah, I, I find that um, an amazingly good way to spend a, a Saturday afternoon. And we meet four times a year. So. That's a big chunk of time. So three hours or so on, that, uh, on, on the reading. Yeah. Uh, um, well, we, it's split up because we'll, we'll break up um, the acts and have a little course um, between one act or another. And the people that are there are just Shakespeare lovers, so they really enjoy that. Do you decide beforehand who's going to read what? Yeah, we have um, what we call the Blackheath Convention. So I'm actually the person that allocates the parts, um, but with the exception of Hamlet, 
Um, what we try and do is even it up over time rather than split parts when we actually read. Hamlet's the exception because there are 20 scenes in Hamlet and Hamlet's in 13 of them, so he really dominates the play. But we've only read Hamlet once, but um, we'll read Hamlet uh, not next year, but probably the year after again. Uh, and wh uh, how, does, how have you chosen the 10 uh, to, uh, to, to make the interpersonal dynamics work? Um, has, it, has it grown? It's, it's just grown over time, and some have um, dropped out, um, but mostly because they've actually gone overseas. But, um, yeah, it's, it's grown over time into the 10. Uh, I'm pleased to say that um, uh, I've got two boys. Uh, both of them love to, to turn up and, and read when, uh, when they can and when they're available when they're in the country. Uh, what do you get out of uh, an afternoon reading Shakespeare? I think you feel differently about life and how you are in the world. Um, and Shakespeare gives you a complexity of insight that I think very few others do. Um, we have this debate, actually, uh, in the group, and it emanates from a, ha a Harold Bloom statement. So Bloom says... Uh, you can never be Hamlet. You can only be Horatio in that play. Now, you can be Macbeth in Macbeth. You can be Lear in Lear. Um, I don't think you can be Iago or Othello in Othello, which I think makes it a difficult play. Um, but the debate is whether you can be actually be Hamlet yourself in the play. And I, I think uh, Hamlet's too great for you, um, but others disagree. And um, uh, one member of the group... Um, We've bought a T-shirt for him, which is Je suis Hamlet. Um, but that's a major debate we have about who you are, <laughs> who you are in a play. Uh, and what do, what do your conversations look like before you've done that reading and after you've done the reading? Um, I think it's a matter of listening to other perspectives because you, you come to a play with its a predisposition and when you hear other perspectives on it um, and a couple of the, the members of the group are actually actors um, you just, just feel dif differently in relation to that I mean who likes and what depth does Edmund give versus Edgar um, in in Lear for instance um, does Lear work as a play um, what are the segues in Hamlet and does um, John Bell for instance thinks each scene is a distinct scene that the Hamlet doesn't segue from one to another. That's an interesting debate. So you hear debates about, about those issues that you discuss. And it, among the lesser-known plays, are there particular gems that uh, you think people should go and read or, or see if they have the opportunity? You know, my answer to that is no. They're lesser-known because um, they're not as good. Yes. And, um, yeah, that's a view that, that I've actually formed. Um, yeah, John Bell actually uh, recommended that we read, read Cymbeline, and I just don't think it's a great, great play at all. But that's that's one of the lesser known ones. He sees things in it that I obviously don't see. But um, the canon to me is the canon because they're good. Yes. Uh, and what what makes a good reading group? Um, what is it, what is it that helps it gel? Um, I suppose bouncing off uh, another reader in terms of the character. Um, so you're not just reading something that's in front of you, you're actually interacting with the other character that's in the room. I think that makes for a, for a good reading and it makes it more exciting in terms of the individuals and the personalities involved and the allocation of parts, etc. Yes. So your, uh, your decades group? 
Um, so that's relatively new. So the concept here is we choose a decade, which is the same as 70s, for instance, from the 20th century, the period from 1600 to 1900, and from 1000 to 1600. So um, the 1970s, the 1770s, and the 1270s are what we chose last time. And in some <laughs> sense, what we try and do, in the, at least in the 20th century one, is to choose things and to rethink things that are almost subversive of, of the decade. Mm. It's harder to do in the, uh, the 1770s or the 1270s. Um, in fact, we don't do that at all in, the, in the, the early decades. But that's interesting in its own, own right. And to go, go back and, and rethink um, from within the decade perspectives. For instance, um, I think the 70s was very circular in terms of time as against the 60s being futuristic in time. It's not without accident that Star Wars opens with long, long ago. So uh, whereas we retrospectively construct that as something ahead of ourselves. Mm. Um, yes, um, things about consciousness. So there's a book called The Great Funk and he refers to Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which I read as a teenager, a fairly young teenager, and I think it opens with Jonathan Seagull's uncle going straight into a cliff wall and rather than go splat, he goes into another realm of consciousness. And I can think of myself actually thinking, wow, um, we were very naive and uh, it's good to go back and rethink those. How, how does that one get structured in terms of books? Do you, do you assign a, a set of books that, that relate to those three historical decades? Um, we assign a person to lead the discussion in each of those. I so, And then we... Um, just um, generally discuss and um, there's disproportionate allocation of time so most of the time is to the 20th century decade rather than the earlier decades. Yes, yes. Uh, does it, has it made you think about time travel differently, that old question as to when you would go, go back to if you had a time machine? Uh, are there particular periods of, uh, of, of history that you think, oh, wow, I really wish I could get back and understand that one better? Well, I went to Sicily recently and read about King Douglas II, and I thought, and, and that's actually, um, he's in the, the 1170s, and I actually read a biography from seeing certain things that he constructed, etc., and thought maybe if I wanted to go back in time, that would be that would be a period that I'd like to go back in time to. He embraced Christianity, Judaism, um, Islam. So he had people in, in uh, his court from different religions. He was um, a strong empiricist, which you'd love in terms of having people interview sailors and trying to work out the globe and how that worked. Um, and whilst he was not a pacifist. He did his utmost to avoid military conflict when he could, but he was still very successful in, in expanding Sicily, which in that time was one of the great courts of Europe. Mm, mm. So Sicily, 1170s, is, uh, is, is where you oh, set your time machine for. And the, uh, the journey group? So this was started in 2015, and what we did is we started on the Silk Road and we chose four parts along the Silk Road, and we did the cooking, the literature, the music from that area. So um, Silk Road, we did Kashka, we did Persia, and we did Syria, and we did Turkey. And that was followed with the Manila Galleon. So we did Manila, Alcapulco, and what we call the Peruvian Diversion. Um, and then we did the Hanseatic League, um, and now we're doing the Dutch East India Company. And so um, it's quite a fun time because you're cooking things from um, different places um, and 
someone brings the music. I tend to do the history, though. Uh, we did South Africa just this last weekend, and my partner and I read extracts from Cry the Beloved Country, which was quite amazing, actually, so mm. we really enjoyed doing that. Uh, and so the idea there is to identify a big historical journey and try and uh, locate yourself into, in, into that trip? Yes, yeah. um, and delve, in, delve into the culture, the foods, etc. So we you know, we're allocated dishes amongst five of, say, the eight of us, um, and, uh, yeah, gain an insight into um, how life was different at that time. How bad do you go with the food? I mean, let's face it, food has been worse in most of history than it is today. Um, the Philippines actually eat hatched eggs, would you believe? I've forgotten the name for it in um, um, the local language. But we, as in fertilised and with, as the, in fertilized with the chicken inside. Right. Yeah, but the chicken's still inside. And so the gutsiest venture we've had is to, to eat, eat that. Um, the Peruvians eat guinea pig, but um, um, I dressed up rabbit as guinea pig rather than go for the rabbit itself. <laughs> go for the guinea pig itself. Uh, you decide not to, be, not to be, be the guinea pig or eat the guinea pig there. Interesting, in Cuxon Cathedral in Peru, there's a mural of the Last Supper and... Um, Christ is actually there with a guinea pig on the plate. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think about uh, starting other other groups? We've had a film group and um, that died away a bit. Uh, maybe we'll reinvigorate that. But I love film. Um, and when we get an opportunity, we sort of go to a film festival, though that probably only happens once or twice a year. Uh, we sign up for ten films and end up only going to half or six, um, six of them because of other work commitments, etc. Mm, mm. uh, but I do love film. Uh, when do you read? What time of day? I don't watch television, so that's interesting, and that frees up a lot of time mm. um, for reading. Um, there's a balance there between drinking, talking with my partner, um, and and reading. And if you drink too much, you stop reading. Um, but yes, yeah, mostly in the evening. Um, I love going away on holidays and read quite differently when on holidays. Mm. Much more like to read fiction rather than non-fiction, um, and that's very pleasurable. Do you, how fast do you read? I'm not a fast reader. Um, in fact, one of the best things I've done is actually read um, Lampedusa's The Leopard while at the same time listening to it. So it slows you mm. down. So listening to it on a DVD, it slows you down and the language becomes more poetic uh, in the slowing downness. Um, when you, you read, you tend to read for information. So you're looking for the next bit of information and you can gloss over the poetry at time and times and that's a, a wonderful book poetically. So um, I like that. Now, I've done that with Shakespeare as well, to read Shakespeare and listen to it at the same time, to mm. slow you down. Um, it's like listening to classical music with the score in front of you. It's just a completely different experience to, to, to be following along with the score. Yes, and you, you see all sorts of complexity in that. Yes. Um, and patterns in that. Are you nice to your books? Uh, do you refrain from marking them and dog-earing them or do you no. get stuck into them with, uh, with a pen? No, I, I mark them. I mark them in a particular way, the dots or um, little parentheses in certain points. And I find that useful because I go back and I, I know where things are. I actually, um, I, I have a memory where I can see things on a page, so I can remember where they are on a page. So when something's in electronic 
an electronic version, like a law report where you've lost the pagination, um, I feel I've lost something. So you no no Kindle, it's all no, the, no, all no hard Kindle, copy, no Kindle, all hard copy. This juncture. Do you always finish books? No. Um, if I'm not enjoying something, um, I'll happily put it down. Do you feel at all guilty about that? No, no. I've got limited time, um, and if the writer can't convey information to me um, within a specific time frame such that I'm enjoying it, I will generally put it down. Yeah. And so how many books would you read in a typical week? In that case, um, I'm fairly slow. I I would have um, probably just a couple. Uh, so not, not just not just even, a couple of books a week. <laughs> I love I love small books, by the way. Um, the one that's sitting here is actually only 140 pages long, so that's that's great. Yes, yeah, I love those uh, short biographies. Uh, Christopher Hitchens did a did a couple in his time, where you essentially take the notion that everyone understands the broad contours of Woodrow Wilson's life. What I'm going to do now is to provide you with my perspective on that life rather than sort of go recite chapter and verse, uh, the school they went to and their, their, their experience, their, the jobs they had, that kind of thing. In fact, that makes me recall another group that we had when uh, I was in London 20 years ago. And it was a dilemmas group. So we had a limitation of 100 pages um, and it was about a dilemma. So we met on Sunday. Now, you could read the 100 pages on Sunday morning if you, if you wanted to, um, but the, um, yeah, the limitation of, of the volume of reading can be a really good thing. Now, you, you were saying uh, before we started recording that uh, Jonathan Haidt's uh, work uh, changed the way in which you, uh, you look at the world. Tell us about what you learned you got from Jonathan. Um, I consider myself quite a progressive person, and the way in which I framed conservative thinking, I think, unfortunately, was, look, maybe someone's being a bit selfish there, lacking empathy in a particular place where, um, yeah, that was that was the inframing. And what um, Jonathan Haidt has done is made me think about moral dimensions that um, conservatives relate to that I think are less important, and so that I see that thinking in a different way. So mm. he divides, um, he has these five or six moral foundations um, um, such as uh, care, harm, uh, fairness, cheating, uh, liberty, oppression. Um, and the left tend to focus on those three uh, and fo- focus less um, on things like sanctity and desecration, um, uh, authority and subversion. And uh, the way in which he presented that to me, um, it was a yes, okay, well, I, I understand a lot of things differently. Um, so that, that's been, been quite a change in recent times. Yes, it's almost like that, uh, that observation that true power is not the power to persuade on a particular issue within a meeting, but a power, the power to control the agenda as to what's, what's in the meeting. So, you know, if we move into an environment in which we are debating uh, whether something is uh, uh, dis- disgusting or not, then that's just naturally a better frame, I think, for conservatives than if we're in a, in a frame of whether something is fair or not, which is probably better for progressives. Yes, no, I'd agree with that. Uh, what about in the realm of uh, philosophy? What are you? Uh, what, what's shaped your thinking recently? Um, for me, philosophy is sort of like a patch quilt, and I gain different things from different people. Um, and if I pick three of them, um, one of them would be Rawls, Rawls' theory of justice, um, and that 
that helps in frame many practical things I think about in terms of the world. Um, I mean, it's a complex theory in many ways, but at its simplest, it is you can justify inequality to the extent that you benefit um, the, the, the lowest person on the rung, um, if you like. Um, and I think that's a pretty good way of viewing, viewing the world. Um, in terms of other two, I mean, Nietzsche, I find, a very interesting philosopher. Um, and I think he's probably the most honest person I've ever read. Uh, a guy called Isaiah Berlin wrote The Fox and the Hedgehog, and he divided thinkers into, oh, based on this Archilochus um, poet's quote, um, that the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog only knows one big thing. Um, and th that book was actually about uh, Tolstoy, and he concludes that Tolstoy um, presented himself as a fox, was really a hedgehog. And he says that Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, and a, a few others um, are actually hedgehogs. I don't see him that way at all. I, I see... Uh, and I, the reason I do that is because his notion of will to power, but I see him as having a perspectival thinking. Um, so he comes at things from multiple angles, which I think is um, extremely good. Hmm. Uh, how have your views on law shifted over time? Uh, you were uh, you st spent quite a, quite a chunk of your life studying law, as did I at the University of Sydney. Uh, uh, how do you how do you look at, look on law now? I'm um, an Atticus Finch person, as many of my generation were. So To Kill a Mockingbird um, was one of the first books I read that I think has, has shaped my life quite significantly. But then you become a lawyer um, and. Um, I remember uh, this case, uh, which is the Crown against Byrne, which is a court of criminal appeal case in the UK, and it was a horrible fact situation. So a husband made he, uh, his wife have sex with a dog, and um, the husband was actually charged with aiding and abetting a crime, um, which was buggery of a, a, an animal. And he was convicted and went on appeal, and his lawyer said well, you can't aid in a better crime when there was no crime committed. And there was no crime committed because she would have had a defence of duress to this crime. And the Court of Criminal Appeal just threw that out because the man was clearly a very horrible man and didn't want that decision quashed. But it stuffed up the law. It stuffed up the law in the sense that you could have aiding and abetting of a crime where there was no crime. Hmm. And the realisation of that... Um, put me into a sort of a, a sense of being a lawyer, which was quite different from the Atticus Finch notion of, a, of law. And then I sort of realised, yes, you are a bit of a lawyer here. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that was an important dimension to it. So in the sense that you felt uh, more fealty to getting the right outcome than to, than, than to, than to having the strict law properly applied? Is that is that the takeaway message? It's almost the other way. It's almost that I wanted the law to be coherent mm. and um, had less focus on these particular facts, if you like. But there's another dimension, and this comes from Nietzsche as well. Nietzsche made the statement, justice is an annihilating manner of thinking. And by that, he, he was referring to a platonic sense of justice. But the more and more you think about something, the more and more you unpack it, the less you can grab onto. Thou shalt not kill 
yeah, but if you're in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, circumstance, would you kill Hitler? Well, I certainly would. You, 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 you break something down so you end up with very little that you can hold on to. Hmm. And uh, does, does that uh, make you feel that law has been less valuable for you, that, uh, that perhaps studying law was, uh, was, was a mistake because the frameworks that shape you now are much more your philosophical and economic frameworks? Um, no, I just think the philosophical um, framework presents a gloss mm. on the law. In fact... Um, what happened with English law is it became quite strict and then um, in the you know, uh, early 17th century there was an Earl of Oxford case where it was decided that equity um, was superior to the law itself and so um, there was a gloss that was put on top of the law and I, I think that gloss is a, a particularly important one. That gloss became part of the law itself um, but um, to sit something over the legal framework um, in a philosophical level, I think, is quite important. You're now a, a manager of a significant team, I, I imagine. Uh, how do you encourage those who uh, you're looking after at KPMG to uh, read and to think broadly? Um, firstly, I'd say to them that Different manners of thinking are really quite important to bring to tax. Um, and uh, if you've just got one dimension of thinking, you will just not see the problem as it needs to be seen more broadly, and you'll be less um, less creative, less empathetic, less all sorts of things in relation to that. So I encourage different manners of thinking, if you like. Um, uh, and to spend yeah, to spend time doing other things, not just being wholly immersed in 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 one world, which is related to that. But that's uh, challenging for someone who's ambitious in a, in a uh, an environment presumably full of Type A personalities. If you uh, spend too much of your time exercising and watching movies and reading and going off to the opera, presumably you struggle to keep up with peers who are devoting more hours to the job. There's some truth in that, but there's also some truth that you might have a problem and you can spend hours thinking about that problem, but then after some break from it, a solution comes to you. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure that devoting large quantities of time to certain problems necessarily solves it in a particular way. Uh, are you, do you find yourself cons consciously uh, trying to uh, limit the amount of time that you're spending working? I mean, your, your job could presumably fill 168 hours a week without any trouble. My working mind and my non-working mind overlap considerably. <laughs> considerably. Um, so, yes, I don't, don't actually think that um, quite that way. Um, that said, um, the breaks I have from that are usually reading fiction or cooking or doing something else, which is to take my mind off the real problems, I commonly say. But um, uh, the, I do get the breaks from it, but, but, but my work and non-work um, lives are um, meld. 
And uh, I have two boys um, who are now grown up, and that's much easier to do that in circumstances where uh, they are grown up rather than you've got a family life that you've got to go to and, yes. and you've got yes. delineations, which are they're quite different. Do you have clever ways of managing the uh, huge influx of email? Um, no. <laughs> I I actually just ignore certain things. I um, We do get huge amounts of, of email. Um, um, I tend to ignore some and just pick what I actually want to read, which can be dangerous um, at times. Um, when I moved into my present role at KPMG, which is from being a line partner to running a thought leadership section, I introduced the notion of on a page, uh, which I think Frederick um, the Great had at one stage, that he wouldn't read anything unless it was on a page. And to try to... Donald Trump, I think, has a similar rule to... Yeah, OK. <laughs> on a page uh, with pictures, ideally. Right. Um, to limit the volume at which someone, uh, which an argument or a new change or uh, limit the volume that someone has to read. And I think that that was very well received. Uh, are there other things that uh, characterise your management style? I'm a funny combination of letting people uh, go their own way and do their own thing, um, except when I want something done in a very specific way, then I'll... I'll heavily uh, get involved mm. but it's that tension between light touch and heavy touch which for those working for me must find uh, a bit difficult but uh, that, that's me. Uh, and do you have uh, particular tools or techniques for managing uh, stress uh, particularly around the, the deadlines which must, must uh, invariably cause a, cause a crunch within you, your unit? Um, I suppose the sort of the relaxation of cooking or doing other things provides that. But I have done some major deals for a major investment bank, and the stress uh, with major amounts of money, the you know the stress involved in that can can build up and really get to you after a period of time. Mm. Um, and it's it's moving away from it entirely that helps you deal with that. Yes. Uh, we uh, touched on travel before. Uh, how, when you're uh, in, in your leisure travel, what's, uh, uh, what do you look for? How do you, uh, how do you decide where to go and what to do? Firstly, I try to read a history of, of um, the place. So this year I would have read a history of Finland, a history of um, Sicily and a history of Iceland because we've been to those three places. Mm. Um, uh, the date... The, the sort of the travel, where do we go and what do we see is often left up to my partner who reads the DK Travel Guide um, and is, is very, very good at maximising time and energy. But That's the uh, one with the beautiful pictures, isn't it? That's the one with the beautiful yeah. pictures, yes. Um, but it's quite heavy. That's a disadvantage. Yes, yes. A lot of clay. But uh, so it's the balance between the two of us that, uh, that works pretty well. And where are you keen to go in uh, coming years? Um, I'd like to go to Cuba. Uh, because it's a country I think will change quite dramatically. Um, I'd like to go to Burma and I'd like to go to Riga and Latvia and, and Lithuania, which we studied in the Hanseatic League um, last year. Um, but I, I, I would like to see those places. I haven't seen them. Mm -hmm. 
uh, as somebody who's uh, thought, read a lot of history and uh, and and thought a lot about the uh, about the world, um, if you were putting together a dinner party, have you thought about well, what's your ideal sort of uh, global uh, trans historical uh, dinner dinner party would look like? Pluck anyone from the uh, the, the annals of, uh, of of your your readings. Shakespeare presumably gets a uh, gets a Guernsey, given that uh, you've got got his uh, your reading group in his honour. Um, Shakespeare would be up there. Uh, in terms of modern heroes or political heroes, um, I was uh, once in table three and Keating was on table one and I turned my chair around when there was a gap and I asked him who his hero was on the political mm. level. And I was surprised by his answer because he said Churchill, which would be the same uh, answer that John Howard would have given. And he, he enunciated for the next 20 minutes um, you know, the period... Uh, leading up to this, the Second World War and what Churchill did in that period. Mm. And at the end of it, he asked me who my hero was, and I said, um, Gorbachev. And he said, bah, all he did was manage decline. Um, I think Gorbachev is right up there. I think Gorbachev is, uh, and the way in which that decline was managed um, has helped shape uh, a far more peaceful world that we live in now. Um, but he'd be my table that that you are creating big time. What about uh, artists? Um, I mean, Van Gogh uh, and the, uh, the uh, museum in, in Amsterdam is a stunning museum. Um, when you look at art in terms of painting art, you're divorced from it in the sense that there could be great pain in the painting, but you feel it in your soul. You don't burst out crying in relation to that. Um, I mean, the Those salt... late swirly Van Goghs I find quite painful to look at because I think about what must have been the, the turmoil in his soul at the time he was, he was doing the, the sort of swirly stars. Yeah. I actually like the self-portrait with bandage. So here you have with his... Mm. It was one of his last ones. Yes. Uh, with, with a bandage around it's his a bit ear. It's calmer, isn't it? Uh, well, he's, he's reflective but in deep pain at the same time. You can feel the pain through that reflectiveness, but it is calm compared to the, the big swirly things. But uh, I think that's an immensely painful painting. Yes. In, um, uh, in terms of other art forms like film, for instance, um, that's where you're much closer to it. You are in the, in the film, in the personality, far more likely mm. to nearly cry or, or uh, yeah, on that level. Are there particular directors or actors that you'd, uh, My, you'd include in your hypothetical dinner party? Yeah, Kuslowski, who, uh, Christoph Kuslowski, who did uh, Tricolor, so Red, White and Blue, would be my three favourite films. Um, and, yeah, I mean, Blue... In, in which order? Blue, Blue. Blue is the most aesthetic film that I've seen. Um, Red, is, Red is about justice, um, and it's almost got that... Nietzschean questioning of, of justice. Um, uh, red's the one I can actually watch over and over again, if you like, whereas blue, there's so much pain in blue mm. um, that I find that difficult. And white, I think white's about friendship, fraternity. Um, and on the musical front? Um, drummers or composers? Uh, Beethoven, but I suspect so many people would say Beethoven. Um, I can never get sick of Beethoven um, in any aspect of Beethoven. It's just brilliant to me. Um, Mahler I love. Um, mm, mm. 
Yes, there's not that. I mean, if you uh, take judge someone not by the best of their works but by the average of their works, then Beethoven must surely be head and shoulders above Mozart. Uh, you know, there's yeah. that huge chunk of early early Mozart, which which is uh, so derivative of what came came before. You know, the greatness is right there at the end. Yes. Whereas the early Beethoven is uh, the early Mahler, just stellar. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Grant, what, what advice would you give to your teenage self? To develop a, a louder sense of laughing. I think I was a very serious teenager and I suffered from migraines as well, but everything I did was very serious and I couldn't develop a laughter because I'd overhear myself and it, it would seem to be, um, I don't know, a lack of honesty there or authenticity in relation to that. Now, both my boys and my partner and even my boss have superb laughs, and I just wish <laughs> I had I could go back to that teenager and say, develop a laughter, kid. Um, that'll hold you in good stead. There are, I have a couple of friends who... Uh, when a joke is told, are always the last to stop laughing. Uh, and it is a great reminder as to how pleasant it is, if you're the one who've told the joke, to have someone just laugh a bit more than you expected them to. Yes. Uh, what, a, what a reward. It, 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 there's, there's almost no better way of saying thank you to somebody. Right. Uh, I even studied laughter, I think, as a teacher. So I read Without Feathers. You probably know that from Woody Allen. Uh, the, the, the title actually comes from uh, an Emily Dixon um, quote, which is, um, hope is the thing with feathers. So he's got without feathers, it's without hope. So maybe it was the wrong book to read, but um, yeah. Well, and what, Woody Allen. What, what impact did that have? Or? Oh, or internally, in, so laughing internally. Um, mm. So... I mean, I think on the back cover of that book, there's a quote um, uh, last night. Oh, that's right. This morning I looked out and saw a red-yellow sunset, oh, sunrise. Uh, of course, I thought the same thing yesterday and it rained. I was, and, sorry, I got that wrong. Um, this morning I, uh, I went out and saw a, a red-yellow sunrise and thought how insignificant I am. Of course, I thought the same thing yesterday and it rained. Now, that is brilliantly funny in some sense, but it's hard to, well, it's hard to laugh out loud in respect of that. You internalise that. Yes. How, how did you go about as a parent uh, encouraging your, your boys to laugh, laugh more? Was there something consciously you thought about there or, or something that you can see in the way in which you've raised them as a parent? That's... I think it's giving them a degree of confidence that they can be a bit foolish um, and can act foolish um, and they went, both went about sort of laughter in different ways. Um, but one used to know vast chunks of The Simpsons and he could quote vast chunks of The Simpsons. <laughs> um, and that can be a bit tiresome in a car at times, but just shutting up in relation to that and letting it happen and letting him move Simpsons humour into his own humour. That was, uh, that was me as a child with Monty Python, uh, the, uh, the amount of time my parents put up with me reciting the parrot sketch. I think right. I look, look back on with great admiration. Um, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? I remember asking my father, um, and this is um, a long time ago when I was um, 18 and 19 and in a first uh, really important relationship, um, what is really important in a relationship and he said kindness and I thought that was a highly inappropriate 
answer. I thought passion or um, loving the same things or or deep emotion was sort of the basis for that. Um, if I was to be asked what's the most important thing about a relationship now, I would definitely say kindness. And I have thought about that conversation with him and how kindness has grown over time, but there's quite a dislocation between what I thought then and what I think now in respect of what makes relationships work. It's a beautiful observation and uh, also something which I can relate to my children. I can say I was speaking with Grant today. Uh, he told me he used to believe his father was wrong, but now he knows his father was right. <laughs> <laughs> when are you most happy? I love these groups that we have. So um, that gives me immense happiness. I, I'm tend to, well, not for the Journey Group, but for the Shakespeare um, and the Decades Group, cook, and I love cooking, I love conversing with people, I love different views at a table mm. um, and drinking. That's sort of um, yeah, fun, happy time for me. Uh, what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, I am not fit, um, so it's taking my mind off the real problems with things like cooking, or which I think about, or um, so... Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm not, not a fitness person, not a marathon runner by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, what are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm actually reading a book called White Working Class, um, which draws, and it's, it's US-based, it's by a professor uh, of law at the University of California, and it's only a short book, but it's drawing delineation between the white working class and the professional managerial elite Mm. Um, and uh, I think what's happening in the world at the moment is very, very complex, but very interesting and unsettling in that in that regard. Um, so I'm trying to trying to get a hold of it um, of the concepts there. I mean, this woman postulates that there's a callousness in the professional managerial elite in relation to the white working class mm. here, mm. Um, and I sense that's right. So I sense I really need to think about that and what that actually means and how we're going about dealing with that because it's a very complex issue. Yes, Richard Reeves' new book tries to delve into some of that, uh, trying to encourage those in the top 10% not to think about inequality as being somebody else's problem. Um, and your book, Choosing Openness, is um, a defence of openness but a recognition that we need, we need to... Um, to deal with some of the consequences of that openness. Mm. They're, mm. they're really complex issues. Oh, absolutely. A fascinating set of interviews this week with uh, workers at Harley-Davidson, Wisconsin. Um, Trump's tariffs are causing Harley-Davidson to move production to Europe. Um, NPR sent reporters to the plant and uh, almost universally the Harley-Davidson workers are strongly defending Trump and willing to vote for him again. Uh, there's, a, there's a strong values thing there which, which seems to completely overwhelm notions of economic self-interest. Um, do you have any guilty pleasures? Yes, and that is on my own in the car I will listen to a song that I like just over and over and over again. <laughs> Look, up to 20 times or so. So that will apply to um, oh, Amy Mann, um, who's a popular US singer. It'll apply to uh, the second movement of Tchaikovsky's uh, Fourth Symphony. It applies to the, to the last act of La Boheme, which is pretty exciting, but I'll just repeatedly go through it again and again. <laughs> and again. 
Have you always listened to things on, on repeat? Um, Does this go back to childhood or is this something you prob- sort of... Prob- probably did. Yeah. Probably yeah. did. Um, the first album I ever bought was Green Sleeves and I probably played that on the phonograph or whatever it was just over and over again, so yes. Just uh, hoping the Mr Whippy truck would come around the corner. Mr Whippy comes around in our suburban Camaray now playing Green Sleeves and I can assure you I don't like the repetition. <laughs> And finally, Grant, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I might go back to what I said earlier. I actually think Atticus Finch and To Kill a Mockingbird truly shaped what I thought about the world. And um, you, 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 I could pick other philosophers, but um, I, I think that, that was a, um, very instrumental in how I view things. Grant Burrell Johnson, uh, taxman and polymath, thank you for taking the time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.